internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as always, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you um you told me that you were gonna pull some weight and like <laughs> get a preamble going, like you use the word preamble, so uh I'm I'm all chin, hands, and ears. Please, hit me. Yeah, and I figured this time I'd, you know, let you know before we were recording. Um, now, I, I just have a quick question for you, my my dear boy. Um, have you actually watched any of the Disney live-action movies? I watched live-action Beauty and the Beast. It was fine. Okay. okay. Um... I have not seen Jungle Book. I have not seen Aladdin. I have not seen Lion King. Have there been any others? Uh, yes, and th- this kind of leads into my little point, and and we've talked about this extensively. The reason the reason I bring it up is it was uh, soft released today that Hercules is getting its live action remake. To answer your specific question, you missed Lady and the Tramp, which came out exclusively on Disney Plus. And uh, kind of to the point I wanna I, I wanted to make on the top here, like we've gone through the paces on this phenomena of a Disney live action remake movie a couple of times now, and I've seen all of them except Dumbo and this and the Lady and the Tramp, and mm-hmm. uh, you know on the other side looking back I was so disgusted by the practice and and i'm not sitting here being like i've seen the light and changing my tune i'm sitting here and being like you know none of these have been culturally significant or even memorable or arguably that good i'd argue the best one is jungle book and i place a lot of that on john favreau but just here we are still trotting out um the same practices because whether they're good or not and whether anybody gives two rips about them by the time they hit home video uh they're still making money i was about to say like what tell me the worst one in your opinion um bu- 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 the, the, the worst piece one, of shit one. The, the, well the biggest piece of shit one was aladdin aladdin was that a travesty you yes that you saw yes you saw that one yes Okay, because I think I remember you saying you didn't want to. I did not want to. I I was coerced by people who are dear to me, and um, I I okay. sat through it, and then I got into a fight with my friend about how it is an objectively bad thing to exist. Okay, so before it hits home video, before it hits streamers, before it does anything, it made a it had a budget of one hundred eighty three million. So let's go ahead and just, you know what? Let's round up and double it. Let's say it was a $400 million budget. Do you know how much money it made? Oh, closer to a billion dollars than not. $1.051 billion. Uh. <laughs> so even rounding up and doubling the budget for marketing, it still made more than double what they spent on it. Sure. It was, flatly speaking, a good investment. <sighs> you I'm think, telling you, you, man. You think Bob Iger's kids like their mountain fortress? I mean, if you had a mountain fortress, would you like it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about Bob Iger's family, but I like to think that his kids are just like, 
you know what, Dad? I don't want to. I'm going to just like, I'm going to be a kindergarten teacher or I want to be an accountant. God, like, I hope so. Last thing we need is a couple of more entitled movie producers. Um, but <laughs> Bob Iger is teaching one of those master classes that are cropping up out of the woodwork. And I, I want to say it's about like business management or something. And I can't remember the direct quote, but in like, his stinger sentence to get you listening through the YouTube ad. He does say something about his children. So I am not going to lie to you, Andy. I, I have never had any intention of like doing any of those master classes. That said, I have watched the like full two minute, like stinger commercial for the Tom Morello guitar one. <laughs> of course you have more than once. <laughs> Because here's the thing, I actually respect Tom Morello, like, not just as a guitarist, but, like, as a human being. Sure. Which I, I can't say for many famous people, but I legitimately respect Tom Morello. So the fact that he is doing one of these makes me kind of sit here and go, oh, this, like, they actually got somebody on this. Who I would legitimately, like, who I legitimately feel would care enough about it to do a good job, you know? Yeah. You you know uh, Neil Gaiman's doing a creative writing one, right? I have seen the beginnings of that preview, and I, in fairness, I can't sit through any more creative writing workshops because, <laughs> like... Because that's what you went to school for? <laughs> yeah, I, once I spent... Two years and so many thousands of dollars that I'm still paying off to learn about creative writing from professional creative writers. I'm like, I'm good. But to spend like 17 hours learning for guitar from Tom Morello. Sure. I was going to say, Go I, I get it. Like, like the third one that came out period was Werner Herzog teaching filmmaking. And I was like interested enough to at least sign up with my email um, to find out how much that course cost. All I'll say about Masterclass right now is it's a tremendous scam. I wish I'd thought of it. Say more about it being a tremendous scam. Well, even if it's not necessarily a scam, just like... So, so, you know, I went through the, the process of looking into what Werner Herzog's film class looked like, and it was something like uh, a 12 or 14 week course, and it was all based around like, we're not going to put a cap on it, however many people are going to sign up, but then we'll tell you that like, okay, the, the big week four assignment is you write a pitch and then Werner's going to read all the pitches. And that was the point when I was like, no, he's not. Some intern is going to read all the pitches and then like, you're going to tell me Werner Herzog picked this guy's and then, and then Werner's going to talk about it. Maybe scam's the wrong word, but just like these things started as sort of a, almost like the most... The, the most low investment art class 
you could possibly take for the highest payoff. And they've just been sprouting like weeds to the point where we have Bob Iger's teaching a masterclass about like business administration. Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing one on like philosophy or something. Uh, that one astronaut who, um, like he's, he's the guy who smoked weed on the International Space Station and took videos of what a tear looks like in space. He's doing one about being an astronaut. And I'm, I'm just sitting here like, okay, at this point, this is just like you're paying for some interesting content that you have homework about. Like no one is going to do the masterclass astronaut course and then go get a job with SpaceX. But I think enough See, people no- might pay money to have Neil Gaiman talk to them about creative writing for 14 weeks. See, here's the thing. I didn't think they were live classes. I thought they were like recorded classes that you get access to. They're recorded classes, but at, at least, and, and like I said, the only one I can really pull any experience from is the Herzog one. And that was like one of the first ones, at least I think it was. Um, that was gotcha. very much, it, it was pre-recorded, but like the content was supposedly, especially late into the course, going to be based around actual submissions, which is why it's the whole thing of like, okay, for for the week 12, like intensive, everybody shoots a scene and then Werner's going to pick the best scene and he's going to dissect it and, and use that. And so it gives the appearance of being something that is, is truly interactive when like, unless your content is what is selected and I don't know enough about the process, maybe that really is how it goes. I'm just skeptical. Um, unless your content was the thing selected, you really don't know if it was, you know, all of this was done over the course of two weeks. And then they're just marketing this thing as, interactive live class when really it's not i don't know because i mean the way i think about it okay so you know this about me i follow a lot of like what little amount of youtube that i watch uh a lot of what i'm watching are like musicians Mm -hmm. um specifically like guitarists bassists things like that um there's a great channel called music is win uh, there's one called Bass Buzz where they do like bass lessons. Uh, there's a dude out in I think like Holland named Paul Davids who does these really really like wonderful short le- guitar playing lessons and with like a little bit of theory to them. Like all great stuff, all stuff that I've used to improve my guitar playing. And it's all people who are doing like here's our content that we do for free on YouTube. And in every single one of them, they have the click the link in my description to get my guitar playing course Mm -hmm. or to get my like, or, or or to sign up for my bass playing course. And, and I've looked at those courses and they are all frankly, just like, okay, here you pay this much a month and you get access to like, here's the jazz course where you can learn a bunch of jazz stuff. And here's the ear training course where we can show you these exercises. And all of these are people who they went to Berkeley or they went to like a conservatory of some kind. They've all, they've all done academic stuff. It's basically them taking all the shit that they learned in music school and dumbing it down. It's it's good content and the monthly subscription is because they frankly do add shit to it on mm. a regular basis. They're, you know, they're content creators and this is just their niche. 
I never begrudge them that. I don't think it's a scam, especially because in a lot of their cases, they'll do thing where they're like, we do, I'll do a weekly, like, hangout where I'll answer, I'll do a Q&A and I'll answer all your questions because you're paying me every single week. So, of course, I'm going to do that. I get it. That's that's just online education. The masterclass thing basically sounds like a way to go, okay, let's take people who are famous for this shit and have them just like, let's slap their names on it. Here's the thing. In my experience, just because someone's good at shit doesn't mean they're a good teacher. Yeah. They're just like, I mean, let, let me ask you, Andy, how many hockey players have good, like, even great careers, and then go on to be coaches. Uh, usually, if they have a great career, then they are not coaches, it, uh, is how that tends to work out. Wayne Gretzky famously was a dog shit coach. So there's, um, there's a theory behind that, uh, that the people who are, make the best players are the ones who have the most natural talent. And yes, they probably also work very, very hard to hone that talent but they have a lot of natural talent. When you have a lot of natural talent, you're maybe not the best at explaining how shit works and and theorizing the stuff because you're leaning so much on your talent. Whereas the ones who are kind of middle of the road as far as talent are concerned and need to work their ass off just to get really, really good or even up to that middle level become the experts, become the people who are so good at communicating this stuff and have learned the ins and outs of it. The best, I'll say this, the best weightlifting coaches, by and large, for the most part, with a, I can think of a couple of exceptions, but most of the really, really great weightlifting coaches that I can name historically were maybe not dog shit weightlifters, but not particularly great. May at best they maybe got on a world team or went to an Olympics, but they didn't exactly medal. Mo in most cases, that's just not them. Yeah. Because the people who did that well were the ones who were naturally gifted and worked their asses asses off. Yeah, and I totally uh, subscribe to that notion. I mean, I'm looking at it. I I, I looked it up just now. Uh, Masterclass is ninety bucks a course, and then you like get to keep it. So what I pay, let's round up a hundred bucks to have Neil Gaiman or Margaret Atwood or David Mamet teach me script writing. Maybe, but I do contest, are these people actually doing it? Um, and, you know, to, to your point earlier, like once the course has run its natural course, then you're not getting live content. But but you, you mentioned something uh, earlier that I want to hone in on. You mentioned YouTube. And speaking ah. of YouTube, <laughs> let's A get into our segue. show. A fine segue. Thank well, you. Bravo. Bravo, my boy. You teed it up so um, nicely. So yeah, welcome sure. to Love-Hate Relationship. Every episode we talk about something we love, something we hate, and then we take your relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And as I've mentioned YouTube, uh, that's we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about today for my love, which is the YouTube channel slash um, internet phenomenon, Zero Punctuation. Astronauts.
Yeah. Which is something I hadn't thought about in a very long time, and I'm excited to talk about it. And it's not your niche, because uh, it's it's a video game review video series. Um, and, you know, we, we you haven't been shy about the fact that you had a moment in your life where you kind of dropped off on video games and i don't think anyone would begrudge you of that but i'm i was very excited when you said you knew about this because i thought i was going to be uh having to really lead you on this one but without any further ado uh zero punctuation is a long-running series of comedic video game reviews created by ben yahtzee croshaw Uh, The series has run for the past 13 years, which makes me feel old because I think I've been watching since like the seventh episode, Um, (laughs) mainly on the Internet magazine site, The Escapist, but also, as we pointed out in the segue on YouTube, the videos are always around six minutes long and are these glorious profanity riddled insult hypercritical drag through the mud uh, experiences for whatever video game that Yahtzee is reviewing that week. Um, And it's all spoken incredibly fast, hence zero punctuation. Um, And, you know, it's not just an audio delight. The, the visual style has really sort of cemented into its own. All of the videos are these yellow backgrounded, uh, completely Photoshopped, cartoons where you know he, he he has a character who is his avatar and then he has all these little imp looking creatures that he will like put a clown nose on or just you know it alters it in whatever way and creates these really funny videos um, a lot of eye stabbing animations i tend to find a lot of eye stabbing animations a lot of talk of eye stabbing usually with a giant dick with a sandpaper condom um that sort of thing (laughs) like like this is this is not rated e for everyone at all but you know while highly critical in most aspects of modern gaming uh just one thing i really like about these videos is yahtzee isn't above praising something if he genuinely enjoys it he just holds like video game design to a incredibly high standard, which I would argue isn't a bad thing. Uh, but you know, positive or negative, the result is always hilarious to me because of the quick wit, the lightning fast deliberately and, um, the, the shock humor. Cause that's very much what it is. Yeah. It's, I watched, you sent me a few of these. I did. And, um, yeah, yeah. You sent me three uh, that were all kind of from. One was recent. One was from like I think three years ago. Uh, another one was very recent, and it was like a look back on an entire company. And then one was an older review. And then I think I sent you a re- the review that I had been familiar with, which we can talk about later. But I think that was an older one too. That was like eight years old, I think. And it feels of that time of YouTube. Yes. Yeah, very, very much. I mean, like, I I really didn't think about how this was a 13-year-old property until writing up my notes for this. And then I was like, oh, oh fuck me. Okay, I, I'm feeling my age now. Um, sure. But thinking back on it, like, yeah, I discovered this, like, sophomore year of high school, which, surprise, surprise, is closer to 15 years than not at this point. Um, and, and, and it is very much of, like, it, it, it was in the bubble. 
it, it came out at the right time. And more importantly, Yahtzee has been pumping these things out like every week for 13 years, give or take a uh, occasional vacation to the point where mm-hmm. he's, he's carved out his own little chunk of the internet to live on and be so recognizable that you, somebody out of the video game sphere goes, Oh yeah. Oh shit. A buddy of mine sent me one of these. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't stress this enough. Like I looked in one of these videos that you sent me and it popped up that YouTube playlist to the side and it's straight up like 600 something videos. I I made a mental note in preparation. He has made 653 um, videos at time of recording. And, and, you know, they're, they're six minutes long, but they're six minutes that, you know, he has to write out a script for and deliver in this lightning fast way that I just can't imagine him getting it all done in one take. And then actually like creating these videos. And then on top of it, actually playing these games. I was going to say, I have heard it said by more than one YouTuber that the good general formula is that for roughly every minute, of content that you're seeing in a video about an hour of work went into it. Yeah. So six hours a week before you count in how much time is actually spent playing the games. That's probably a part-time job straight up, which I mean, granted if he's, if he's a YouTube creator and he's monetizing any of these videos uh, and, or he's putting it through a magazine, maybe it is his job, but That doesn't change the fact that, holy shit, that is... I find that level of consistency just plain old impressive. Because imagine doing anything every single week for 13 years. Oh, absolutely. And almost, like, the only thing I can think of with that kind of consistency is that some people go to church that frequently. (laughs) And that's an hour a week. I'm I'm reminded of a a family guy line about Jay Leno that I'm going to put in here about how... fashionable to take a shot at Jay Leno. Look, look, the fact is the man is out there every bloody night with fresh material and he's charming. That's that's legitimate. That's the thing I think about. And even then, like talk show hosts like go season by season. So, you know, they also uh, have staffs. They also have staffs. They also have writers. You know, as far as I know, this guy has been pretty much a one man operation the entire time. And I have so much time and respect for that. You know, these are these are silly, funny videos. But at the same time, like the dude is a legitimate video game journalist who makes salient points and has hard opinions. And like, you know, he's not afraid to drag a company through the mud. One of the videos I showed you was for a game called two human, which uh, has gone down as just being one of the worst video games ever made. Like that is the general consensus. Um, And yeah, another one was about acclaim entertainment who are the guys who created the Turok games. And it was actually like, like this really interesting retrospective look at the fall of this company who made these insanely ludicrous and bad marketing decisions like, you know, coming out with a fighting game and then uh, telling people that if they paid to have somebody, uh, a recently dead relative's casket decked out in this game that they would pay for the funeral. Or um, the other one was like, if you name your baby Turok, we'll get, we'll give you some money like these, these absolutely, 
absolutely insane decisions, but like, that's not common knowledge. The guy had to, at the very least, like spend some time digging into acclaim entertainment. So yeah, let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything. I remember when I played video games, like I, like I was a subscriber to game informer. Like I think every, um, young male with a GameCube in the mid two thousands, had a Game Informer subscription as well. But I remember reading, like, reviews on some of the acclaimed games that he was talking about. Specifically, like, I remember Turok Evolution. I had the old Turok game on the N64, and I never bothered beyond that because I didn't actually like that game that much. Mm. Uh, I inherited it. But um, I also remember he has he talks about BMX XXX, which is a Dave Mira sequel, like a BMX game. But for some reason, it just had a bunch of ass and titties in it. Uh, I remember reading a review for that in Game Informer that was like, this is a Dave Mira sequel with a bunch of ass and titties. And it's a bad game, you guys. And Dave Mira took his name off of it. And he references that in this in this fucking video, how Dave Mira was like, yeah, take my name off of that. Also, I'm going to sue your asses. Right. He's got the line about how um, Acclaim like kept Dave Mira's face on the box, but took his name off. And they thought that, you know, maybe he'll just understand that we, we want to be friends. And, and Dave Mira's heart grew three sizes that day. No, I'm just kidding. He sued their bollocks off. Um, yeah. You know, the, the video you showed me was his review of resident evil five. And it all boils down to him talking about how um, resident evil four was this amazing, fantastic breath of fresh air into the resident evil series. And five was just, literally more of yeah more of the same shit only racist and bad but he manages to throw in um a david bowie reference and like i'm i'm reminded of why i i do enjoy the comedy of sam kinnison you know way back to our first episode and we talked about that broken broken man but i'm reminded of why i love his angry like shockingly mean humor i'm also reminded of another internet video series um by a company called red letter media in which this guy spends like three hours eviscerating each of the star wars prequels and when i say three hours i mean per video like he spends longer than star wars episode one talking about why star wars episode one is an irredeemable piece of flaming garbage i enjoy this sort of hyper mean comedy that's just something that i really find incredibly funny and i and i get but there are a couple of things that set zero punctuation above for me, which is why I'm talking about it instead of those things. You know, for one, we've we've just talked about how you know the man has consistently delivered every Wednesday for 13 years, give or take a vacation. And even then, um, beyond that, he's shown a level of emotional maturity that other video game journalists might not... I mean, without causing too many generalizations, um, video game journalism doesn't always sound like it's going to be the most tolerant or politically correct venue. Andrew, are you telling me that video game journalists might lack respect for marginalized people? Saying ain't so. (laughs) Oh, oh, lordy, lordy, how will we survive? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, specifically, um, Yahtzee has 
kind of a sub series. It's, it's the same thing as that acclaim entertainment where he, he looks back on something. And when that first came out, it was like 2009, he did the first one and you know, he used the word retarded and he would use mm-hmm. the word retarded fairly frequently. It wasn't like his, one of the opening tools in his tool belt, but it was a word he used several times. And to his credit, he used it in the he used it in the super old in the Resident Evil Five review that I sent you. Exactly, which is eight years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and to the guy's credit, as the world has evolved past the use of that word being something that is acceptable as an insult. Um, he very pointedly changed that in the, um, in the graphic and to the best of my knowledge, uh, removed the word from his lexicon. Um, beyond that, there's another instance where he was caught under fire for, um, a video that had a transphobic slur, and, and I was sitting here trying to think of what that could have been. So I looked into it and he made a, a joke about how I'm not gay. I only suck off post-op transsexuals. And, and to the guy's credit, like he came under fire and then wrote an article of apology, like within a week addressing the comment, which is why I have it at the top of mind and explaining the joke he was trying to make. And then owning up that it was incredibly lazy language on his part to go about it the way he did subsequently edited the video to remove it. Like, honestly, I think there's something to be said for that level of, yeah, I fucked up. I'm sorry. I fucked up. Here's what I was going for. I totally missed the mark. I'm going to change this now especially for somebody who makes their bread and butter by being essentially a shock comic. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not sure if this will still be topical when, uh, this episode comes out, which I, we're recording this at the tail end of April, uh, the last day of April, actually. I think this episode's coming out like first week of June. So, uh, hey guys, we're finally ahead. But um, <laughs> I was reminded today that um, I, I was just listening to a news podcast and they were talking about the Joe Biden sexual assault allegations. And in in that, um, they went back to a previous Joe Biden apology for his kind of, uh, not specifically the sexual assault, uh, just kind of his inappropriate uh, treatment of women. And uh, he basically, like, his actual words, this is not in a statement, like, written by somebody else. These were his words that he said, like, verbalized. He was like, uh, I, you know, I didn't mean to cause any harm for anyone. I, I am sorry that was not my intentions. Um, but he, he says, like, I am not sorry uh as he said something about like i'm not sorry for about my conduct insofar as my intentions were concerned uh i'm sorry that people were i'm sorry that it happened and i'm sorry that people were upset and i'm like this bitch this bitch touches on people and then says i'm sorry it happened and i'm sorry people were upset not i'm sorry i inappropriately touched people and I don't bring this up 
um, to like relitigate all the <laughs> political topics we've right. been talking about. Um, this is supposed to be a comedy podcast, y'all. Um, but I bring this up basically just because that's not a real apology. That's an apology that certain shitty men in my family use because they don't want to admit that they're wrong. That, I'm sorry it happened, I that wasn't my intention. It's bullshit. You own what you do. It sounds like this dude did that here. He said, I, I did a thing. Not saying I didn't. Here's what I was going for. I missed the mark. That was my bad. Let me fix it. That's a good apology. Yeah. That's a solid, that's, that, I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's doing it right. And that deserves credit in this media landscape, especially. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I wish I could be voting for him instead of Joe Biden, but what are you, you going to do? <laughs> He's Australian. So I know what are you going to do? Maybe I should just move to Australia anyway. Um, no, I, I tremendously respect that technically Yahtzee Croshaw is a video game journalist. You know, these funny videos are critical reviews with baked into a, a whole lot of comedy, but they are critical reviews. As somebody who isn't huge in the gaming landscape, but, you know, I like to keep up to speed, I'll happily sit down and, and watch an episode, especially if it's about a game that I am considering buying uh, before I will go to Game Informer, which I still have a subscription to in this uh, this day. Um, oh, my and, God. Oh, yeah. Game Informer is a staple, dude. Um, but I will watch Yahtzee's reviews before I will sit down and, and read the article and read the recommendation. Um, and, and, you know, I, I take the guy um praise very highly because he gives it out so infrequently and for the most part the things that he likes are the things that i wind up loving um sure you know with the grain of salt the guy makes his living by being uh, a, a totally foul-mouthed like i mean insult comic it's, it, I, I said it before he's not for everybody um <laughs> hi mrs ruiz I, I don't recommend you, you watch these videos. <laughs> I'm very touched. You uh, asked about me. I'm, I'm doing well. I hope you're doing well too, but this isn't one you need to like, see if, if uh, this guy's comedy is for you. Um, and, and, and even you, Alex, I know you're not like, like you aren't terribly invested in modern day video games. So like I kind of combed through his videos finding stuff that I thought you would be able to relate to. You know, the other video that I sent you was about super smash bros. Um, yeah. Which is a game I love. like unironically because right. I used to play super smash melee on GameCube and I love that game. Totally. And I just, I, it's a stupid game, but I love it. Yeah. Um, the guy's videos aren't for everybody, but they are very much for me. And I think if you are a listener who enjoys, um, laughing at people being mean at people, other people who are dumb. Um, and if you like video games and you're unfamiliar with zero punctuation, I highly recommend it at least to like give it a shot and, and decide for yourself if this is too vitriolic or not. Uh, you know, beyond that, 
um, Yahtzee has written several uh, comedy books. Um, you know, they're all fiction. One of them is like a direct World of Warcraft ripoff. But it, the, the premise is basically what if a video game character in World of Warcraft was alive and came to understand that they were a video game character? How insane would that make you? He, he's got another one, um, which is like this apocalypse in Australia, but the apocalypse is a six foot tall layer of strawberry jam that eats people. Um, all of his books that I've read have been absolutely delightful. And I'm, I'm really just happy to talk about somebody who took a talent in this case, writing, um, applied it to a passion video games, and then took a shtick talking so fast and being so mean and created this thing for himself because he very much has, you know, his own little corner of the internet. And I just, I love that. Do you want to hear something totally unbelievable? Some people say they have difficulty telling whether I recommend a game or not. I know what morons. Hmm. I dig it. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I love as someone who like a little bit wishes I could go back in time sometimes and I could repeat this with like music and just do like, foul mouth reviews of music related topics um before sideways made that a thing uh <laughs> sideways is a wonderful youtube channel where a foul mouthed uh irishman yells about music production software oh, it's hell yeah. glorious um actually very similar comedic style to this but without the animations but um no i get it that's and that's a brilliant niche i I came across this... I didn't come across this Resident Evil review. It was sent to me by our dear friend Chris, with whom I have played Resident Evil 5. He knows that I was a huge fan of that franchise and that that game was... Eh. And I think he's a fan of this, or or was, and he sent it to me years and years and years ago. So when I saw this animation, I went, I recognize this! This was that thing from Resident Evil 5 that Chris sent me forever ago. So... No, I appreciate you bringing this to the table. I think that the niches can get a little tricky sometimes, but um, you cover our video game base really, really nicely. And I think this was a cool idea, talking about a YouTuber, talking about someone who brings you a little bit of joy, who entertains you, uh, who definitely scratches that particular comedy itch, which, like, I've got that too, so I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate this, Andrew. And I'm going to link to all of those videos in the show notes. Heck yeah. So y'all feel free to check it out um, or not. You know, Ma, don't <laughs> click the YouTube links like you don't need to. It's fine. Um, I love you. Uh, but I appreciate you, Andrew. This is this is honestly awesome. And I kind of want to scroll through and. Uh, listen to some of the retro reviews of games that I've actually played. Because he actually talks about a bunch of Resident Evil games that I played and other just Nintendo games that I played back in the day and just older shit. And I'm down for it. I highly recommend it. That, that's the recommendation I'm going to give for anybody. Like all of these videos are basically, you can find them in one giant playlist and just, you know, scroll through until you see the title of a video game that you like, and then see, um, 
you know, what he has to say about it. It's probably awful. It, it probably involves like comparing something to headbutting a brontosaurus to death or uh, mm-hmm. getting fucked in the ear with a sandpaper condom. That's a direct, that's he's a direct gonna, quote. <laughs> yep. And he's going to say the C word a lot, but that's okay. It's YouTube. Indeed. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's YouTube. Oh my God. <laughs> that is a t-shirt right there, my friend. Oh, Jesus Christ. Shall we move on? Indeed we shall. Indeed we shall. Oh, God. This is going to be such a long episode, and I love it. Okay. Um, Andy, you brought some love. Now I'm here to drag us down to the depths of hate. So, as always, dear boy, I like to start with uh, asking you a question, just a brief one, uh, and then I'll get into the topic. So, Andy, dear boy. I want you to tell me, please, what is the best and or worst advice that you've ever received to increase your productivity? If you can give me one, the other, or both, like I'm, I'm good. Uh, if you can't think of either one, give me the weirdest one. Sure. And, and I did have to think about this uh, for a while, but... I mean, real quickly, the best one I, I've heard is like the 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 twenty on five off approach, where you know you focus for 15, 20 minutes and then give yourself a little five minute break, and um, you know that worked out tremendously for me back in college, and that's I, I think that's a, a really good technique. The worst bit of advice I've gotten, um, or at least heard about. Um, is t- trying to take your passion and turn it into a side hustle. I want to protect mm. people's anonymity, but somebody very close to me um, was on the phone with their mother and their mother uh, is part of a multi-level marketing scheme where they sell jewelry. But of course oh, the, the way you really make money isn't by selling jewelry. It's by bringing other people on so that they sell jewelry um, mm. and this person, I did, yep. I did cut co once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this person was telling my friend, you do makeup and you love it so much. And you're so great. You don't like, like what you can do is, is do your makeup and then put on the jewelry and, and take pictures talking about it. And you can sell it that way. And I just had to sit there and, and really grip my teeth at the idea of let's take your passion Let's take something you genuinely just enjoy doing for its own sake, which is makeup and um, yeah, turn that into your way to make some money on the side. Yeah. That's not going to totally like kill your desire to do makeup ever again. Sure. I I remember I, I was just talking to Stephanie about this whole topic and I remember her telling me that someone once told her that you should have uh one hobby that makes you happy, one hobby that keeps you fit, and one hobby that makes you money. And she heard that and she's like, if I have a full-time job, why the fuck do I want to make money off of my hobby? Like, that's just going to make me not want to do that hobby. That sucks. That's horrible. Yeah. I have a full-time job that's directly related to that thing I'm passionate about. Uh, And you know what I don't do when I clock out is think about making film or movies. (laughs) So just saying, I mean, you know, Kevin Smith worked in a convenience store. 
just saying. Man. We did a whole episode about it. I know. Um, <laughs> he paved the no, way for I, me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, don't work with Harvey Weinstein. Anyway, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and for reference, you know, my, my examples are kind of in similar veins. Um, the best advice I ever got was to um, build systems for dealing with any tasks that take up um, time or mental energy. Um, but, you know, don't, but don't, or rather they take up time, but they don't take up mental energy. Sorting emails is a good example. Like just sitting there going through your inbox, going, deleting that, deleting that, don't care about that. Oh, let me read that. If you take the time to set up your inbox rules ahead of time, you don't even see the messages that don't matter to you. So a little bit of upfront work there, you save yourself a lot of time and mental energy. That's just one example. Um, That was good advice. That was legitimately useful. Worst advice that I've ever seen has been that you should always keep your office on you. You should always have uh, your smartphone or your tablet or your laptop with you so that uh, whenever you are like waiting in line at a grocery store or you're at the DMV or something, you can get some work done while you're, you know, you have the spare five minutes. That is the worst productivity advice I've ever heard. I hate it. And um, whoever thought of that is um, exact is suffering from dealing with the exact topic that I want to talk about today. I'm all cool. ears. Yeah. All right. So my topic is hyper productivity, specifically the fetishization of hyper productivity. Uh, Andy, when you hear hyper productivity, what does that like? When you hear that word and close your eyes, what what do you picture when I say those words? Because I picture Alec Baldwin in Thirty Rock, but I I picture one of those like fifties workplace orientation videos with the kind of music and like everyone in those cartoon videos working at like fast forward speed Wah. I hate it thank <laughs> you um, so this is kind of a broad topic so I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little brief definition but um, the idea of hyper productivity as I want to kind of examine it is it's the notion that it is good admirable and even desirable to accomplish a high volume of tasks in a comparatively short amount of time uh, and this can manifest in careers. I think that's where a lot of us are going to encounter a lot of this thinking, but it can also manifest in creative work. We've just talked about that. Uh, or even in home lives, particularly for people with families. Uh, Andy, neither of us have kids. Uh, you have a pet snake. Uh, and I have a haircut that I'm trying very hard to grow into something beautiful. Um, <laughs> I got a bigger laugh than I expected. <laughs> you're just you're a funny man. You're a funny co-host. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so while I don't on the surface really have anything against just trying to be, you know, more efficient with your day-to-day tasks or get a little bit more done, it's that constant hustle mentality that yeah. comes with fetishizing hyper productivity 
that, um, you know, at its most innocent, I think it's really, really unhealthy. And at its worst, I think it's, like, really dangerous. Um, have you ever heard of the concept of working lean, Andy? Um... Is that, is that, does that phrase have any meaning to you? Because it's one that I only learned about in, like, a few, like, in the last couple of years, and it pisses me off a lot, but I want to know if it's something you're familiar with. I don't think I've ever heard it, but I can kind of draw a conclusion. Is that anything like Stay Hungry? Like... Not quite. Okay. Um, so, so working lean is, uh, it's actually a corporate philosophy where you deliberately schedule your shift workers at slightly lower than like the optimal capacity for just getting all of the work done. Mm. Part of that is to kind of create a more frenetic workspace so that people are just generally higher energy and you know part of it is also to create kind of this idea of some scarcity amongst your employees so that the quote-unquote hungriest will step up to fill those gaps and by the way the company also gets to save a little bit of money by staffing lower than they probably should sure so it's a thing that has kind of been called out in a lot of labor activist circles for a, for a large amount of time. But hyperproductivity and this fetishization of it is something that is really kind of some of the groundwork for this level of thinking in workspaces. Um, I don't know how many times you've encountered like... I feel like there might be some, maybe it's the bubble that I live in, Andy, and you can tell me if this is your experience as well, but I feel like once upon a time, uh, probably around our childhood, I encountered a lot more instances of people bragging about how much they overwork themselves and talking about how the way to get ahead is to be, you know, first one in, last one out. Of the office, taking on a whole bunch of extra, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a thing you encounter still, or was that a part of your childhood more than it is your adulthood? I know your workplace has some bullshit going on about justifying (laughs) yourself, so. Yes. Yeah, and and we can talk about that. Um, But to answer your question, like, I feel like... I kind of phase that 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 phased itself out of my life, but that might have more to do with the fact that I really don't work with that many people my age anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically at my company, I'm more often than not the absolute youngest person um, in the office or even on a film shoot uh, by a considerable margin. Um mm-hmm. But I can remember instances in college um, when I was a theater major where it was like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to give my whole Saturday to, to volunteer and go tech. And that will like show that I'm a, a really hard tech worker and that'll get me points in that way. Um, or even just, I'm, I'm, I, I've certainly heard first one in last one out a lot. And I, I, I just keep coming back to like, yeah, yeah, stay hungry. Prove you're gonna prove you're gonna like 
be the most committed one, always ask for more assignments, always ask for some other work. Um, I think about a coworker's brother-in-law who is a realtor and this coworker, not necessarily bragging, but kind of talking up how like, yeah, my brother-in-law makes bank. He's also like on the phone every night until like midnight sometimes just trying to like seal these deals. And that always just sounded like gross to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's the thing. Some people will argue that's hyper productivity done wrong. Like that's, that's doing it with too many hours, but I would argue like, okay, I'm a believer in work smarter, not harder Sure, in general, but it doesn't change the fact that, and I don't know if this is a purely American thing or purely capitalist thing, but the, again, it is that constant hustle mentality. I was pissed earlier this week because I was working from home and I was going to be my day off and somebody who I was, you know, trying to get us to work with told me, hey, I know you guys are, uh, I know you're not going to be in the office on this day, but it's the soonest I can send along this paperwork. Is that going to be a problem? And I was like, honestly, it shouldn't be. And the reason I said it shouldn't be was because I have a work iPhone and I was like, I'm going to pull out my work iPhone and forward your email. All I have to do is I get the email, I open the phone, I hit like forward and send it where it needs to go. Because of that, I agreed to it. But I was pissed for needing to do that because I find my personal time, my not on the clock time, to be very sacred to me. Sure. I have told people before, like, I have coworkers who will straight up just be like, yeah, I clocked out, but I just need to finish a couple things and then I'm heading home. And I'm like, no, you clocked out. Go the fuck home. You're not getting overtime. Leave. Number one, labor laws. Number two, go the fuck home and have a personal life. For the love of God. No one's rewarding you. There's this idea that you be that you're gonna be rewarded for this hyper productivity, for this hyper hustle. Maybe hyper productivity is the wrong thing to zero in on. Maybe I should be talking about constant hustle, but well, I'm gonna stick with hyper productivity because I already dug my hole. But no, and I can find plenty of examples for hyper productivity. I mean, I I know somebody who uh, used to be a manager at a Taco Bell and would like routinely work between fifty and sixty hour weeks, just taking on as many shifts as she could. Um, for really no reason other than just this sort of like, well, if I do it, it's going to, it's going to look good for me. This same person, um, is now a teacher and has told me to my face that like, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll clock out and then just, or, um, not, not a teacher. Uh, it, w- it was something, it was some sort of administrative thing. And, and she was saying, you know, yeah, sometimes I'll just clock out and then go home and then do another three hours worth of work. And I'm just like, why, why do you do this? Um, yeah. and, and so just to bring up my point, even within, in my, my own company, like, yeah, I have a boss who, when video production gets slow, usually because it's the summer and no one's going to come to Orlando, um, it has been bandied about more than once. Okay. Uh, it costs a thousand dollars a day to keep the lights on. So everybody needs to let me know how you're going to justify, um, the work for the day. 
And to the man's credit, he's never laid me off. He's never threatened to lay me off. He's never threatened to cut my hours. But he has asked multiple times, like, okay, how are you earning your paycheck today? Um, at the same company, you know, we're, we're, we're still in, in the quarantine. We're still in the throes of COVID. Maybe by the time this episode is out, we won't be. Whether or not that's a good thing is a whole uh, other conversation. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are working from home. Everybody in my office except me is working from home. And I've noticed this phenomenon where they never stop answering emails, it seems like. You know, they're answering emails from eight in the morning until nine at nine at night. And I very pointedly uh, don't even look at my uh, work emails if I am not on the clock by nine to five thirty. And it's not because I'm the only one in the office. It's because I straight up refuse to do that work for you if I'm not getting paid. Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's the right thing to do. That's the legal thing to do. And I agree. And, and I want to segue away from like work, just because I do think that in the creative and the home spheres, this also manifests. So I don't want okay. it to seem like this is purely just a work thing. But um, Andy, you mentioned that you come home from your gig ostensibly in your industry, but you don't feel like doing your own creative work when you get home. When we're recording this, I just finished a 10-hour day with my day job and I do this because I love it. I do this because it's like fucking fun as hell. And when we were creating the idea of this podcast, you originally thought maybe let's do it once a week <laughs> and I said, "No, let's do it twice a month." Right. <laughs> because twice a month will be sustainable without being like just fucking way too much for us to deal with. Yeah. I've, and I was right. You were right. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. <laughs> There's a reason but, I'm um, damn impressed by Yahtzee and his weekly uploads. Yeah, no, straight up. And like, it, you know, YouTube is a good is a good spot there because like, okay, a YouTuber I follow, his name is Adam Neely. He does videos. Ostent he does a bunch of videos about bass playing. He's a bassist and composer kind of by trade and a gigging musician in New York. But he also does these YouTube videos on like music education and music history and music theory and bass playing and all manner of things. And he has frequently said like he's been on YouTube for about 14 years. He started off by just like posting videos of him in his dorm room playing like Bach on his electric on his seven string bass guitar. Cool. Um, yeah. Hella awesome, but that's how his YouTube channel started. And then at some point after he'd been doing that for like three years, he decided, okay, I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to do one video a week. And every Monday he has a video. Some of the videos are like gig vlogs, which are he just took video from like various gigs he did, uh, wrote up some commentary with like an idea of here's a thing you can learn from this particular gig. Um, some of them are these more in-depth things, but the point is the dude has released a video every single week for like a decade and has said like, I'm going to be on vacation or I'm going to be on tour. So I've set up these like easier videos, these shorter videos, um, these Instagram Q and a videos where he just like 
goes on his Instagram page and is like, send me questions. And he'll just answer the questions on Instagram and then post it as a YouTube video. Like, some of his videos are high production. Some of them are very low production. But he consistently does them. On top of being a gigging musician, which is a hustle. And I respect the shit out of that. And also, I know that wouldn't be sustainable for me in a creative context. One of my favorite things about my day job is that I have the mental space to then do podcasting, do music, do writing. And I set that time aside very specifically. Here is the hour. I just got done doing Napo Rima, which is National Poetry Writing Month. I wrote 30 poems in 30 days. And I did all of that by planning my time as best I could. I didn't write every day. Sometimes I wrote multiple poems in one day. But that was like, that was done in addition to things. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a, I have to hustle to get everything out. That was done as a, I need to do this sustainably and carefully and intelligently. I have never done NaNoWriMo, which is November's National Novel Writing Month, where you write a 50,000 word novel in 30 days. That's like, I think it's, I, I think that's like 1600 words a day. Never done that. That's not sustainable for me. I can write sure. a, multiple poems in one day. I can't write thousands of words in a day. I just can't. You know I know Ron Hubbard. We get it. I am not L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard. That is very well put. But also, you know, uh, I see people in my workspaces fetishizing that kind of hyper productivity. I've said this. I've talked about this constantly. People talk about how prolific, like, Ray Bradbury was as a writer. But Ray Bradbury had his wife handling most of his life outside of writing. Ray Bradbury was able to write for eight hours a day because his wife did all of his, all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, all of the housework, and also was his accountant and handled most of his business engagements. So all he had to worry about was writing. So we're going to fetishize Ray Bradbury's incredible creative output while ignoring the fact that Ray Bradbury didn't do that because he's better than any of us. He was able to do that because he was taken care of. He was privileged in that way. And that hyper-productivity mindset doesn't make room for that, I don't feel. No, I agree. Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense, man. Yeah, and I mean, how many words have been spilt about how... Shitty it is that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow writes these articles about raising your kids while also doing two hours of yoga a day and eating the healthiest foods ever while she's got a fucking nutritionist, a personal trainer, and multiple nannies. Stocking stuff for news, Gwyneth Paltrow released a candle that's supposed to smell like her JJ, <laughs> And it's sold out immediately. <laughs> I hate to always bring it back to class privilege. I was about to say, I'm not mad about it. <laughs> But, like, it's there. It's... If I want anyone to take anything away from this particular hate, it's that it's okay to want to be productive. It's okay to want to increase your productivity. In researching this, I read probably a dozen, like, productivity hacks lists. And all of them are horrible. And I'm not linking to any of them. But, like... If that's something that you want to do to experiment with, to try, there's a million really useful things to do. And there, a lot of it's the same generic advice. Get up early. 
Make it so that you like cut down on the major decisions you have to do. Make sure you try and get a little bit of physical activity each day. Take breaks throughout. Break big tasks into little, smaller, more manageable tasks. All these are very useful tips, and they all make sense, and they're wonderful. You're not a bad person for trying them out. Don't worry about being hyper-productive. Yeah. Take care of yourself above all else. Like, Yeah. How many people are starting side hustles in the quar? And I'm like, dude, it's okay to survive. Well, and there's probably, I mean, I, I don't know if the number is greater or lesser than the amount of people who are like, yeah, I'm a creative writer by trade. Um, it's really fucking hard to write during the quar because I'm freaking out about the world. Like, and it's just. It's the idea that more is more. Yeah. And more is not more. It's just not. You. I don't see what productivity is worth if it takes away from the rest of your life. I don't see what fetishizing it is worth if it means you're going to be taken advantage of by your employer. Or if it means you blind yourself to the privileges that allow other people to be more productive. Or if it just doesn't make you happy. Yeah. So I don't have any deeper point than that. I just was thinking about like, okay, what's something I'm legitimately hating? I am legitimately hating all of this talk in the quar about people going, you know, if you now you have time. So if you don't finish that novel or you don't write that musical or you don't learn that new skill or you don't get in shape, then that means that it wasn't that you lacked time. It was that you lacked commitment. And it's like, you no yeah like i don't know about you andy actually i do know about you because we talk outside of this podcast (laughs) i don't just put you in a box and take you out when it's time to set up the microphones i've been dealing with a lot of quarantine depression yeah i'm just trying to survive fuck you that i haven't finished my novel while in the quar fuck you exactly so that is my point there. Um, any final thoughts before we move on to our question? No, I think this is the right time to be talking about it. Um, I know you said you just kind of decided what you wanted to rail against this week, and I, I think this was an appropriate time to do about it, you know? I mean, you're usually the fatalistic one, but like, no, <laughs> tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. So is it really worth like doing that three hours off the clock or even like deciding you're going to use your hobby to try and make you a little extra scratch. You know, I, I have started writing during the quar, but I'm not holding myself to any expectation, even to the point of, of finishing it. I'm just trying a thing that I haven't done since college because I feel this desire to and and that's enough i would love to read anything you write if and when that is possible you'll be one of the first people i send it to (laughs) sounds good you want to get into our question bud yeah should i read this one or you want to um i know you found it um but i'm not go ahead you go ahead and read it okay cool so this one comes from relationships.txt once again i'll link to it in our show notes uh we'll get started I guess this isn't a serious issue, it just bugs me. 
Uh, by the way, uh, this is sent in by a 23-year-old female uh, regarding her 23-year-old male boyfriend. I am 5'7". I've been to doctors recently and been measured at 5'7", sometimes 5'8", depending. My boyfriend claims to be 5'11". He is at least an inch or two shorter than me. My estimation would be between 5'6 and 5'7". We met in person, not on a dating app, so I know how tall he was from the get- so I knew how tall he was from the get-go, and it's not an issue for me, and I've never presented it as an issue. All of my exes are also a spectrum of heights. He wanted to prove to me that he's 5'11", so we stood back-to-back in front of a mirror, but I stood straight and relaxed, and he tensed up his back and shoulders and stretched his neck as long as he could. His arms were stiff from standing so straight, and yes, standing like he did look- Standing like that, he did look a bit taller. But that's not a natural height, right? If you have to put in that much effort, I feel like that's not your accurate height. When we first started dating, he said he thought he was li- he thought I was like 5'4 because he thinks he's 5'11. When I told him I was 5'7, his face dropped. But he's still adamant that he's 5'11. I think this is ridiculous. He brought up being 5'11 the other day and also said he thought he had Marfan syndrome, which a 6'4 ex of mine actually has. I'm just incredulous. How on earth does he still think he's pushing six feet? Is there a way to bring this up in a way that isn't discrediting or hurtful because it does bother me and I don't see a reason to lie or be upset about being 5'7"? We have somebody with a bit of a shortness complex, and we have his partner, who doesn't have a shortness complex. Uh, Does anything come to mind for you immediately, as far as names are concerned? (laughs) Uh, Thumbelina and Tom Thumb. Aww, I know a a person or two that that particular... Setup will make very happy. Okay, Thumbelina. She's a funny little squirt. Dealing with your boyfriend Tom Thumb, who for some reason thinks he's five eleven, despite the fact that he is several inches tall. And and real quick, right off the bat, um, for anyone who isn't aware, Marfan syndrome is a real thing, and it is a genetic disorder that like basically makes you super tall and spindly and like thin and and elongated. Okay. So, Andy, I read. Would you like to start? Yeah. Um, this is such a weird one because, like, I just think, who cares? Why does he care? I get why he cares. I, I get how especially, like, shorter men, there tends to be a, a societal, like napoleon complex of the whole thing which it it sounds like is what your uh boyfriend has instead of marfan syndrome um (laughs) uh you're funny god i feel like this can just be as simple as like so you stood back to back in front of a mirror and he like tried to game the system what what you do is and, and and I feel like there's a I feel like you could do this at even like a gym. You could have like a third party trainer or something do this if if this is what it took. But you have somebody else measure the dude, like in front of him, 
And, and the reason I, I bring up possibly a trainer or somebody is you have somebody who like keeps him from arching his heels up and straining his neck. And, you know, you just, you, you, you get the guy's height on record and you put this indisputable, like, okay, you, me and the witness are all here to agree that you are five, seven. And guess what? I still love you. If you love him. Oh, you know, he's your boyfriend. I'm assuming there's some vein of affection in there. Um, (laughs) This is just such a weird thing. I'm incredulous too, Thumbelina. Like, he's not lying for anything other than his own ego. And I guess guess maybe, like, like really the most you can do is call him out on it and, and, and don't just let the lie go, but be like... It doesn't matter how tall you are to me. I didn't, I didn't start dating you because I looked at you and went, I'm going to climb that like a tree. I don't know that. I mean, that's kind of short and sweet and simple. I'll, I'll, I'll try to think of another thing, but what do you got, Alex? I'm trying to think whenever I answer questions like these, uh, I think my approach Andy is to try and like figure out either like maybe a route to the issue or an avenue that you maybe haven't thought of. And frankly, I mean, this just sounds like some toxic masculinity bullshit. Yeah. Like we did a whole episode segment on toxic, toxic masculinity, <laughs> um, which is a nice little advantage to having, you know, 46 prior episodes. We've talked about almost everything. Um, there's a Simpsons did it joke somewhere in here. Actually, you know what the Simpsons did? Bart needing to grow an inch so that he could play Fallout Boy in the Radioactive Man episode. So, eh, what are you going to do? I feel like it kind of doesn't matter how much evidence you throw at him. Because you told him your height. Mm, sure. And you say that his face dropped, but that he's still adamant that he's 5'11". Um, I think my approach, Thumbelina, is to just spitball a few different strategies at you and see what, if anything, will work. Andy's idea of maybe finding, like, a neutral third party to do the measurement, um, you know, that might not be a bad way to kind of address it. A personal trainer's good. A doctor's good. I'm almost tempted to be like, what does it say on his driver's license? But I think you self-declare at the DMV, so his driver's license probably says 511, which is hilarious. I mean, you could do that. Uh, you could be... You could do some cloyful mocking, um, maybe in the vein of, like, wearing heels around him a whole lot, um, and just kind of looking down on him, especially if you're if you're comfortable wearing, like, longer heels just to kind of put him in his place about that, but you're already an inch taller than him, and he's insisting that he is taller than you, so, eh, I don't, I don't, I think accentuating the issue might be kind of hilarious. It might Um, be kind of hilarious. It might also, I mean, not knowing about the guy, it might exacerbate some, some, some unfortunate consequences, but. Yeah, it's like, it's, the question is, like, you care, obviously, and I don't think this is a big enough deal that you're like you. You don't say that you're like thinking about dumping him over it or anything like that. He doesn't seem 
dangerous. He just seems like he's gaslit himself into thinking that he's a height that doesn't actually fucking matter. That's the other thing. Like, none of it really matters. He's just convinced himself that it matters. Um, And I, like, there's also a part of me that wants to sit here and be like, hey, y'all should have a Tom Cruise movie marathon and be like, (laughs) oh, look, he's your height. I say this as a man who's five six, and I'm constantly I'm like, oh look, it's Tom Cruise. He's my height. <laughs> like, that's a legitimate joke I make for myself. Um, yeah, I feel like there. I have an instinct about this, and I don't know if it's productive, but I have an instinct that just like mocking him might be like. Not mocking him for the sake of just, like, pure comedy. Like, not to be mean-spirited, but just to show that you don't respect this opinion. Because I... I'm a firm believer that if there's, like, just some dumbass bullshit that, like... Even if if it's your partner, or even your friends, or your family members. Like, just some stuff that you just don't respect. Like, my father once told me that caffeine isn't actually a stimulant. Like, it doesn't actually have an effect... Because it doesn't have an effect on him because mm-hmm. he's been drinking coffee since he was off the breast. So, like, he can drink an entire thing of coffee and go straight to sleep. So he's like, Ca- caffeine doesn't actually do anything. And I've just been like, Dad, I don't respect that opinion. <laughs> and I don't res- I don't respect that opinion. I don't respect that statement. It's factually inaccurate. It's real dumb that you say it. And I'm not I'm not going to stop making fun of you for it. I am not going to stop making fun of you for that until you repent and recant. And to wit, I think every other visit that I go to Orlando and see my father, I crack a joke about him drinking coffee and be like, oh, yeah, there's that thing that you say does nothing whatsoever. Remember when that happened? That was real stupid, Dad. (laughs) Because I don't respect his opinion about that. So maybe that's a bad approach. And he hasn't actually recanted. He's just been like, shut up and stop talking. But it's funny to me, so eh. Well, so there you go. You got you got one way that's a little sweet and one way that's a little sour, Thumbelina. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I It is the sour patch kids of advice. And like if you're really Thumbelina, you could like dance with a sour patch kid, yeah. so I'm kind of oh, I'm kind of surprised more of our uh, more of our helpful advice sessions don't wind up like this. Um, <laughs> so either way, there there's two ways you can play it. Maybe you do one and then the other. You make fun of him for pretending he's five eleven, and then you you know very sweetly or or kind of tongue and cheekly go, and I still am into you anyway, you idiot. Um, you can I you do can like that approach. Ways. Like yeah, like be be reassuring. Try not to be mean spirited. But it is legitimate, like, this is legitimately stupid, and this is a bubble that he should have popped. Not because it's important for him to observe the objective reality of his height, but because it's bullshit that he puts any stock into it at all. Like, this bubble needs to be burst. Yeah. Just for him to advance as a human being. And if you want to advance as a human being... <laughs> that that one I had to. That was too low hanging. Oh god. Um you can send your relationship questions in to us at love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. Absolutely. Um that's it. 
Um, you, Thumbelina, uh, if you see this response, because I'm going to post it under relationships.txt, but like, if you see this, you can totally do what I'm about to say. Um, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I think we got that thing fixed. You said you were caught up on the podcast, so appreciate you. Uh, We would also, yes, we would also love it. Absolutely adore it. Uh, Thumbelina and all others. uh, If you reviewed us on any or all of those. Uh, And hey, Tom Thumb, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and challenge you once we're out of the quar. Come down to North Carolina. We'll meet up. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder, and we'll be the same height because we're both five six. We're both Tom Cruise sized. Uh, we're also Bruno Mars sized. Uh, and you, Tom Thumb, you Thumbelina, and everyone else out there, all of you can tweet us at LHR Pod. That's LHR P O D with your questions, and follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. You can uh, follow me, Andy Boel, at JovoCop two one one three on Twitter, or you can listen to my other Insta- my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where we talk about movies and not just crappy Disney remake ones. Uh, on all of those venues, Alex just said. I don't think like any of those Disney remake remakes qualify as cult, no, no, but... they don't. Which is why we're not talking about them. No. Sure, absolutely. And I'm at A underscore X underscore on uh, Twitter and Instagram and, uh, you know, what the fuck, TikTok as well. Uh, Thanks for listening, y'all. As always, please tell your enemies.